This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. I'm Alan Garber, the director of the Center for Health Policy. Uh, my colleagues here from um, your right <laughs> to the left are Grant Miller, an assistant professor of medicine who is in our centers. Uh, Grant is an economist who works on development and health. Paul Wise, who is professor of pediatrics, uh, a very, very prominent child health services researcher, health policy researcher, and someone with a great deal of experience in international health. Uh, you'll hear more about that in the course of his comments. And Douglas Owens, a professor of medicine, uh, also in the Center for Health Policy, who, uh, who does uh, a great deal of work on assessing the effectiveness of medical interventions, and he will be talking today about some issues about the prevention and treatment of HIV disease in Russia. Um, the room is a little bit tightly packed here, but I think my colleagues will be standing up when they speak. I don't really have formal comments, but I just wanted to tee up with just a, a few general observations before we uh, get into this topic in a detailed way. When we talk about democracy, uh, whether it's in relation to health or for any other reason, we often think about uh, do they have elections. But of course, people who think a lot about democracy uh, and its, its role in development, for example, think about many other aspects of democracy. And this is just a fairly standard list of elements of democracy, what the US Agency for International Development calls categories of democratization. And one of the things you may observe here is that they, they list elections as number seven. Um, there are many other aspects of which constitutionalism, as you see, is at the top here. Um, human rights, many, many other aspects. And as you can imagine, when we talk about the relationship of democracy to health, it's not always going to be self-evident how you classify a country, how, whether it's democratic, how democratic it is. Uh, and in fact, in the literature that's tried to look at democracy and <coughs> development, for example, there are many approaches to measuring democracy. Uh, and in the end, of course, what we'd really like to know is um, what are the critical elements and although much of the literature about the effect of democratization, uh, at least in the development literature, is about general economic development, of course, there's a great deal of interest in what it means for the health of a population. And that is a topic that has not been very widely studied, but it has been studied. This is from uh, a very nice article that was published in the British Medical Journal a few years ago. I'll stand up here for a moment just to point this out to you. Can you see this in the back of the room? I'm sorry, it is a little small, but up here it shows life expectancy, infant mortality per thousand live births, and ma maternal mortality per thousand live births. And what they try to do is take out the effects of income. <coughs> so they have here low income, middle income, and high income countries. And the dark red bars represent free countries in the sense of being democratic. Uh, the white is partially free, and the pink is not free. And what you see in this study where they've tried to control for some other factors, but they can only do it crudely, they, they looked across various countries in the world, is that within each of the income categories, anyway, uh, generally speaking, the more democratic, it's classified by free here, the better the health outcomes. 
longer life expectancy, lower infant mortality, and lower maternal mortality. Maternal mortality is actually a pretty rare event in high-income countries, no matter what kind of political systems they have. Uh, but it, it, it's a, a huge, huge issue in low-income countries, as you see over here. So there's at least a suggestion that greater democratization might at least be associated with better health outcomes. These kinds of studies, though, as you can imagine, only go so far to inform us about this topic, both because of the difficulty in measuring uh, democratization or democracy, um, but also the link between uh, the political system and, and health outcomes. So the real hope for understanding this, my colleagues and I believe, is to really look at a detailed level with specific diseases, specific types of health outcomes, and drilling down in specific countries. So I'd like to turn it over to Grant Miller, who has done a great deal of work in the developing world and has a, a very unique perspective on this topic. Grant? Thanks. Um, Alan, I'm actually I'm going to ask if I can switch chairs yeah. with you, so I'm not reaching over you here. Okay, so exactly as Alan was saying, I'm also I tend to be loud. My daughter tells me I'm too loud all the time, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try without a microphone also. But exactly as Alan was saying, um, government is not a monolithic uh, entity. It's a collection of individuals like you and me, all of whom want uh, different things. They have different priorities, and they run around uh, interacting with each other, bouncing off of each other uh, according to rules of engagement defined by <coughs> political institutions. And um, so there's a large group of us here uh, at Stanford who are now trying to get very serious about trying to be more nuanced and systematic about uh, the micro-level incentives embedded in political institutions and how they provide incentives for government uh, to produce or not produce good population health. Um, I'm, sort of the, I'm sort of the small fry on the team. And uh, so I'm actually going to be the appetizer today. I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait 10 or 12 minutes to really get to the main course here. So I want to I sort of set the, the backdrop a little bit more by taking a step back and saying, well, if we're really interested in understanding how this very rich heterogeneity in political institutions is related to rich heterogeneity in population health, or if we want to ask a question like this second one here, how well does public decision making reflect how much health people uh, reflect how much health people want, we really have to start at the fir with first things first and move to how much health do people really want for themselves in the first place. So um, I, I still eat like I'm a 22-year-old, uh, even though my body and my hairline suggest I'm not so young anymore. Uh, so I, I would actually call this an appetizer, maybe. Uh, so why am, I, why, why am I showing you a picture of a cheeseburger when we're starting to talk about how much health do people really want? Well. I think it does a terrific job of illustrating the fact that people want health, but they want other things too. And uh, they want health, but they don't want health at any price. And so uh, an extension of this that I hope you'll bear in mind as we talk this morning is that uh, good health policy is not necessarily, can be, but not necessarily health policy that produces the best population health. You could make cheeseburgers illegal. I'd probably live for a year or two more. Uh, my wife would uh, thank you. Uh, endlessly, but uh, I'd be pretty unhappy about it. Uh, so, uh, so being very serious about the fact that people care about things besides health is an important uh, consideration in trying to understand government incentives for producing health. 
Uh, another example of this, drawing on uh, some work that I've done, uh, that I really like because it's counterintuitive, so hopefully you'll find it counterintuitive also. Uh, don't worry about any of the numbers here or anything like this. All I really want you to focus on is whether or not those two lines are sort of moving, moving together or moving opposite each other. So this is uh, some work that I've done on coffee price fluctuations in Colombia and uh, infant child health uh, in Colombia as well, Colombia being a major producer of coffee on world markets. So let me just tell you quickly how to make sense out of this mess. So uh, this blue line here is showing you real uh, coffee prices paid to coffee growers in Colombia. Um, that dotted red line is a little bit more complicated. Let me tell you how I constructed it. I took all of Colombia's counties, there are about 1,100 of them. I lined them up according to the relative importance of coffee in each county's local economy. I cut them in half, and then I took mean infant deaths in the above median group, and from that I subtracted mean infant deaths in the below median group. Well, what the heck does that mean? Um, basically, the way to interpret this is that as coffee prices go down, on average, infant deaths go down in areas with more coffee relative to areas with less coffee. When coffee prices go up, infant deaths go up in areas with more coffee relative to areas with less coffee. See, I told you it would be counterintuitive. So, uh, so why the heck is that? Well, uh, when coffee prices go down, there are really two things that are going on. One is that uh, household income is going down. Most coffee in Colombia is grown on small farms because of agrarian reforms about four decades ago. The other thing that happens is that the value of your time is also going down. So uh, what you have to give up by not working on your coffee farm one day and taking your child to the doctor is actually much less when coffee prices are lower. And it turns out to be the case, at least in rural Colombia, that the things that matter most for child health are not things that are terribly expensive in financial terms, but they take a heck of a lot of time. Uh, you have to bring clean water from distant sources. You decide to take your child to interact with the primary health care system. You have to schlep four villages over. You have to wait in queue for half a day. Uh, you have to hope that the doctor's there. It takes a lot of your time. Um, so this is an example of a case where uh, I think most of us would agree that uh, coffee growers in Colombia are better off when coffee prices are higher, but because they care about things besides health, you actually find health deteriorating as coffee prices go down. Okay, so is this just some intellectual abstraction? Uh, well, that might be, but I'll argue that there are other applications where it's not. Uh, I think an immediate application of this is what I consider to be one of the biggest puzzles in global health today. So global health efforts uh, over the past three decades or so have really emphasized shifting out the supply of simple and expensive health technologies with very large health benefits. Um, and as this has occurred, so we're talking about insecticide-treated bed nets for malaria, vegetable protein supplements for stunting and wasting, point-of-use drinking water disinfectants for diarrheal disease, cleaner cooking technologies for respiratory infections. As this has occurred, uh, a real puzzle on the demand side has emerged. Uh, specifically, people don't seem to use these simple and expensive uh, health technologies with very big benefits nearly as much as we think their benefits uh, justify. So why the heck is that? Um, well, uh, what, what the, the, the majority of you today, uh, evidenced by what USAID is spending a lot of money on right now, is that uh, people really just don't understand the benefits of these health technologies. So we need to invest heavily in culturally appropriate health education, information campaigns under the guise of what's called social marketing. Um, I actually have a hunch that that's not exactly right. It's not that health education is important, but I suspect that people actually know pretty well 
what they're doing, the choices that they're making, and because they care about things besides health, they're actually hidden costs embedded in culture and context associated with using these technologies. The policy implication being that what the world should be doing is not spending a lot of money trying to force people to use our technology because we made it and gosh darn it, can't you see it's great? We should be trying to develop the alternative technology that circumvents these hidden costs that are leading to very low adoption rates. Okay, so let's make things more complicated and move from the starting point of people care about health but they care about other things too, to trying to analyze how well does public decision making reflect how much health people want. Um, so uh, one place that I've recently done some work on this is actually uh, uh, in American history, specifically in the case of uh, America's progressive era democracy, uh, as women were first uh, gaining the right to vote. So the progressive era was a very exciting time in public health. It came right on the coattails of uh, fundamental new discoveries, a scientific revolution about the basis of disease in the form of the bacteriological revolution. And it was really women, even before they could vote, who were standing up clamoring for government to be involved in bringing these new benefits of this new knowledge of the, of the bacteriological revolution to the American public. So here you have a cartoon of a bunch of kids out uh, mobilized, marching, demanding that their moms be given the right to to vote out of dire concern that things like their health are being governed by uh, uh, men's votes. Uh, very consistent with a uh, stylized fact in development economics that if you give money to men, they, uh, they drink it and smoke it. If you give money to women, they spend it on their kids and things that are good for their health. So uh, we have the introduction uh, of a very large new block of voters into America's progressive era democracy uh, who systematically want more health than existing voters, men. And uh, well, what happened? Uh, if, if you're history buffs, you probably know we're talking, you probably think we're talking about the 19th Amendment uh, in 1920. We're actually not really talking so much about that because most of the action in enfranchising women came at the state level. So uh, taking all of the American states and lining them up uh, relative to the year that women began voting in each state, what you see, first of all, are big increases that occurred right away as soon as women started voting, and, and uh, big increases in public health spending. Uh, you have politicians standing up saying things like, gee, I would have never, uh, I would have never voted for that darned health appropriation, uh, except for the fact that women are voting now, so I'm going to get killed at the polls if I don't. Uh, you can see more direct evidence of this in the actual voting choices made by legislators in office. So a graph showing you the same setup, showing you uh, what we'll call progressive in quotes, uh, voting in Congress split by the Senate and House, progressive here not defined by what Grant Miller believes to be progressive, but defined by what's consistent with the progressive era reform agenda. Uh, you see a big increase in progressive voting that occurred immediately after women started voting uh, in the Senate, uh, not in the House so much, which is interesting, but um, my colleagues will be upset if I don't let them talk, so I'm not going <laughs> to get into that. And this translated, this follows all the way through and translated into large reductions in, uh, in uh, infant child mortality. Uh, and I'm not showing you, this is by age, I'm not showing you by cause, but specifically in the causes that would respond to diffusion of the benefits of the bacteriological revolution. So it sort of poses a very natural question about is it a general phenomenon, is it a, is it a general true statement to say that uh, forms of government that do a better job of representing population preferences are going to lead to uh, better health? And uh, as you suspect the answer might be, uh, we're going to tell you not necessarily. 
so these are just three uh, salient uh, examples of extremely good health performers for their level of economic development. Uh, and I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to say that any of these regimes does a particularly good job of representing uh, population preferences. So, um, so we're really interested in the nuanced micro incentives embedded in political institutions, not just displaying <coughs> democracy or not, or autocracy or not. Um, and we're, we're just getting going, but I'm gonna um, turn it over to some of my colleagues uh, for, uh, for the main course here, so. Thank you, Grant. Yeah, thanks. I'm not a main course either, despite what Grant said, and there'll be no comments about hairlines during my talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I'm going to do uh, what I think is, is sort of a case study uh, of uh, a problem in health that, that I certainly think is affected by governance. And I'm not going to really have answers for you about how governance affects it, but I, I want to use it as an example, of a, a concrete example, where um, we can think through the issues about governance and health. And what I'm going to talk about is HIV in Russia, which any of you who follow it, and there are many people here who are more expert in this than I am, know this is an enormous problem. So Russia has one of the fastest growing epidemics uh, in the world in HIV. Um, it's driven by injection drug use. There are about one and a half to three million injection drug users in, the, in, the, in Russia. Uh, they have now a million or so people infected with HIV, and it's happened in a incredibly short period of time. So their HIV started in the late 90s, and they now have as many infections probably as the United States, or if not more. So this is a rapidly unfolding public health catastrophe uh, of major proportions in Russia. And um, IDUs account for 70 to 85% of the cases. It's a national security issue. They have very high rates of HIV in the military. So this is it's really an, an enormous problem. So. What are the current policies on drug use in Russia? And, and it's, there's a lot of heterogeneity, of course, as you'd expect, but largely it's viewed as a criminal justice problem. And there's little, if any, treatment for drug abuse, particularly injection drug use. And there are an enormous <coughs> number of incentives not for people who are injecting drug users not to come forward. They lose driver's license, they may be incarcerated, et cetera. So you can imagine that people are not eager to step forward. There's so, so there's not much treatment, and there's almost no treatment for HIV. That's changing. Um, in 2006, about 5,000 or so people got antiretroviral drugs, which are the drugs used to treat HIV. Probably 150 to 250,000 people needed them. So there is a, uh, a small number of people getting antiretroviral drugs, but it's increasing rapidly in Russia's attempting to, get, to increase access. So the question that we've been interested in is how should antiretroviral use be expanded in Russia to improve their population health? And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and in the end we'll bring this back to sort of governance. And so we're going to do a thought experiment, really. Um, we do this as a mathematical model of the epidemic, and then we look at different interventions and try to understand what that would mean if you implemented those interventions in the population. So we're going to look at four different strategies. Suppose first that you treated non-injection drug users, we treat like we'll say 80%, you can never get everybody, so we'll just use 80%. So you're going to spend all of your money treating non-injection drug users. And I'll say that's essentially the current policy. Or 
Alternatively, you could decide to spend almost all of your money treating injection drug users, or you could treat both. Let's say you could treat 50% of injection drug users or non-users, or in this very optimistic scenario, you can treat 80% of people, uh, either injection drug users or not, with antiretrovirals. And so the question we're going to ask is, what would these different strategies mean, both in terms of population health and in terms of the economics and how much money you'd be spending and how cost-effective it is? So here's what we found. These results are for St. Petersburg. And first, I want to have you focus your attention right here. So this is the HIV infections that you could prevent in a 20-year period using these different strategies. And so first, look at the non-injection drug-using target strategies. So again, this strategy means you're going to spend all your money on people who are not using drugs. And you'd avert about 10,000 infections. And all of those infections, essentially, mostly, would be in the people who are not using drugs. Okay. Now suppose that you targeted all to injection drug users, so you treat 80% of injection drug users, and what you find is you, in, you increase the number of infections you, pre you prevent enormously to about 40,000. But the remarkable thing I'd point out to you is you prevent more infections in non-injection drug users if you spend all of your money treating injection drug users as opposed to treating the non-injection. So if you really wanted to, to, to protect the general population, you'd actually do better spending money here than here. It's a little counterintuitive. Now, if you did the untargeted strategy, um, you're somewhere in between, still preventing a lot more infections than if you spent your money that way. And the optimistic untargeted, where you get 80% of everybody, of course, is the best strategy. And you prevent, you prevent a, a lot of infections in non-injection drug users and in injection drug users as well. Now let's just look at the economics and um, the costs, uh, the costs and the, and the health effects. On the y-axis here, I have what are called quality-adjusted life years. You can think of just life years saved. This is for the whole population. This is, say, Petersburg, and this is a 20-year period. This is the status quo where virtually no one's being treated. And here are costs down here, about $9 billion. And here's the non-injection drug-using targeted strategy. Okay? You'd, you'd, you increase the number of life years in the population by about 400,000. That's a lot. Um, and it costs you a billion or so dollars to do it. Now look at the injection drug using targeted strategy. As we showed before, you actually prevent more infections doing this. You get more quality adjusted life years. You save more life years. And it's actually cheaper. Okay? So if you were, if you it, sort of, Ethical questions aside, you would pick this because you'd say, well, I'm getting more health benefit and it costs me less money. No one's going to really institute a policy like that. So let's look at the, 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 it, <coughs> look at the untargeted strategy. Here you do better still than this, this strategy looking at just, just, uh, just non-drug users, um, and it costs a little bit more. And then finally, the optimistic strategy is way up here. If you could really reach 80% of everybody, you'd do the best. Again, I'm making the point here that if you focus on injection drug, uh, non-injection drug users, you get much less benefit and it costs you more than if you, than if you treat the injection drug users. Okay. So, strategies that ignore, ignore injection drug users, which is the current policy, I would say, or certainly the current implementation, provide the least benefit of any, for any level of expenditures. It's the least efficient way to do it. To prevent infections in non-IDUs, you have to treat the IDUs because they're the engine behind the epidemic. They're the, they're the rapid transmitters that are spreading 
to other people. The current policy in Russia is the least effective and it's the least cost effective. Okay? So let's talk now about does governance really matter? And in, in thinking through this problem, we came to the conclusion fairly soon on that really the barriers to effective epidemic control are social and legal. It's not that people don't know what to do. You can provide substance abuse treatment. You can provide antiretroviral drugs to people, uh, to, to injection drug users. But substitution therapy, which, which means methadone, which is used here, is illegal. Most sort of harm reduction, like needle exchange, et cetera, is not allowed. It's sometimes it happens sporadically, uh, but it's very difficult to get these programs up and running. And the effective response really is going to require changes in law and policy. And so this is a point where I would say this is not so much a medical issue, but it's a an issue of social and legal complication uh, uh, strategies, and that really has to do with governance. And I won't try to make a statement about whether Russia has a democracy or not, but, and, and, and people like Catherine can, can comment on that, um, but certainly governance is what's going to, uh, uh, what's going to, to affect change that's really going to matter in terms of the HIV epidemic here. Um, the medical issues um, are more straightforward than you think. I think the legal and social ones are very complicated. And just last, this is the work I showed you is done by Elisa Long, who's a PhD candidate here, and Margaret Brando, and some of our collaborators uh, uh, who are either Russian and uh, some of our other fellows. Um, and I'd be happy to talk more about it after Pulse. Thank you, Doug. I'm on the desktop. You heard it. And the first slide, I think, is blank. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start with a little, good, little story um, before I get to the graphs and the analyses that in some ways might help shape the context for this conversation. Um, I, I spent a lot of time working uh, in Highland Guatemala, in a, particularly in one indigenous village. And I was there several years ago, and in the evening I was stopped on the street, what often happens, and you know what? You know what drug I get asked for more than any other? Viagra. <laughs> Welcome to globalization. <laughs> but this was, not, this was not a typical Viagra request. This was a, a woman who I knew for many, many years um, who asked me to come see the child of one of her neighbors. So I go in and um, lit only by a very small little incandescent light and there's a uh, 14-month-old baby laying in the bed, clearly extremely unwell, malnourished, crying, um, feverish, with a rash and a really big abdomen. And the child had been apparently normal until about one year of age. And the, the child had been taken to doctor after doctor, given antibiotics, gets a little bit better, gets worse. but. This is an extremely poor family. I've owned no land, the Indian family, um, and they were beside themselves what was going on with this child. We examined the child, came up with some ideas, didn't really have a great idea. We had no diagnostic capability there, but we changed the antibiotics somewhat, the child got a little bit better, and um, I came back to, uh, to the States. 
When I went back down a couple months later, I went by the family, and the child was doing poorly, but not horrible. But the new thing was that the father of this child was serious, had some very serious nonstop diarrhea. And there's a lot of diarrhea in Guatemala, but usually not adult men, almost like a cholera kind of picture. So went to see him, and he was also losing weight. And HIV came up in my mind initially when I first saw the child, but we had never seen HIV in an indigenous family in that part of Guatemala. But when the father was sick, we said to the grandfather, who was sort of the patriarch of the family, you need to have the child tested for HIV. And her name was Liliana, and he took Liliana across the lake, cost about $5 US, test was free, and he came back that night, knocked on my door and said, I don't know what this means, they say it's positive. Is that good or is that bad? So we sat down and he had known about HIV and AIDS from the radio, but had never known anybody, didn't know anything about the disease. The child had HIV, which almost certainly meant the mom had HIV, and given the social workings of the family, almost certainly meant the father was, had HIV and was the one who brought it into the family. We had to get everybody tested. They were tested indeed. The mother was positive, the father was positive, but the older sister, Liliana's older sister, was negative. Then the question became, now what? How do we get them onto antiretroviral therapy in Highland, Guatemala? They weren't even available, and it was approximately $700 out of pocket, which is about the total family income for the year to treat, this, to treat the, the three people. So we found a clinic, not a Ministry of Health clinic, but a Doctors Without Border clinic that would give them free antiretrovirals. It was two and a half hours away by bus. It took four hours, two and a half by car. It cost the equivalent for the whole family of about 15 US dollars each trip. And while the antiretrovirals were free, the CD4 counts, the other blood tests, all cost money. We tried to find money from various sources to support the family, but you know what really came through? Were their neighbors. They didn't know what disease, because they didn't tell anybody what disease it was. They knew the family was sick, and the neighbors put together money for transportation. And for the next year and a half, the family was on antiretrovirals, and little Liliana turned into this chubby, little, happy kid. And each time I would go to the family, visit the family, she would be running around, and she wanted to teach me how to make tortillas. Big mistake. But at, at four years of age, she was already expert in making tortillas. And that went on pretty well with that routine. The family increasingly borrowed money, borrowing money for the CD4 accounts. But Liliana was growing up. She was about ready to enter what function as a kindergartner. Um, but then she got sick. She got a fever. And even though she was on her antiretrovirals, she was starting to get worse. So the local physician said, you need to go over to the special HIV clinic. Got on the bus, got to the HIV clinic about four hours later. And they immediately looked at the child and said, she, Liliana, is way too sick for us to take care of you here. This is really outpatient. You need to go to the big public hospital in Guatemala City. Back on the bus, 
about 45 minute bus ride, get to the big public hospital. And the emergency room is almost the size of the main auditorium over there. You walk in and it's just a huge public hospital in Guatemala City. They register, take a seat. After about two hours, Juliana was breathing very rapidly. Eyes were getting glassy. Grandfather went to the to the front desk, please, somebody needs to see my child. They will, they'll call your name, we were very busy, sent down. Her breathing stopped being fast and started to get slower and slower and slower. The doors open to the main emergency room, there's a doctor and nurse standing there, and the grandfather grabs Liliana in a little blanket, walks, runs over to the <coughs> physician and says, help my baby. My granddaughter's dying. And the doctor turns and goes, and this is important, says, Vos Indio, wait your turn. Now you have to know something about what Vos Indio means. Vos is the, like the, you know, there's a two form and a new stead form in Spanish. There's also a Vos form, which is like a, a super familiar term. And the wealthy people in Guatemala use it to speak to the Indians. The Indians never use it to speak to the wealthy people. And, and among friends, you can use it among friends, but it has a very important social meaning to call somebody Vos, call an Indio Vos when you've never met him, and he's actually older than you are. And Indio is a nasty way of saying Indian. Vos Indio, sit down and wait your turn. Well, within about 15 minutes, Liliana was gone. And um, they took Liliana back um, in a blanket, back on the bus for four hours. Now, um, I came back a month later and heard the story from the grandfather. You know, I walked in, I knew the baby had died because people had called me. And sat there, and for an hour, the grandfather just vented about what happened. And the thing he came back to over and over again was Bolsindio. Bolsindio. Okay, that was the thing that hit him hardest. So when we talk about health and governance, we're talking about child health in places like Guatemala. I'll just take the first slide. What we're talking about really is the relationship between health and the exercise of power. That's how we see and we approach the epidemiology of child health and particularly the distribution of efficacious interventions to people who really need it, people like Liliana and her family. Next slide. And because of that, <laughs> we basically put together a cross-disciplinary um, collaboration between political science, uh, CDDRL, Center for Health Policy, and you can see the cast of characters here, and Catherine's here in the audience. Um, but it's been a remarkable education for me, working with Catherine from CDRL and Jeremy and Alberto from Political Science and of course uh, Grant and, and Catherine from CHP PCOR. And this kind of collaboration could never have happened without the support of Howard and Karen Evans because their generous support allowed us to, to create an infrastructure of interaction to actually carry on analytic work that would support our focus on health and governance. And the kinds of things that we're looking at, particularly 
using the case of child health and governance, looking at the relationships between child health and different political structures in a similar way that Grant and um, Doug were talking about, but also to look more carefully at how different political structures affect the actual dissemination, the provision of certain highly efficacious interventions to kids. And one place that we looked very quickly was at wealthy countries. What's the distribution of health outcomes in wealthy countries related to political structures? And I'm just going to briefly go through this, but UNICEF actually went through the wealthy countries throughout the world, the main industrialized countries, and looked at child health and well-being, looking at homicide, injuries, infant mortality, school attainment, access to computers, mental health, self-esteem, a whole range of different dimensions, and ranked all the countries. If you ranked number one, that was great. If you ranked like 18, 20, that was really bad. Next slide. This is the average well-being rank. Again, 20 is not a good ranking, and one is a good ranking, based on a crude indicator of wealth distribution, the uh, inequity in wealth distribution, the Gini coefficient. Um, the higher the Gini coefficient, the more unequal is wealth distribution, the more stratified uh, income would be in a particular society. And I just want to point out, this, I put this together like a 2 a.m., you know, looking at Excel spreadsheets all day at this. I couldn't believe it. I thought I did something wrong because it was so striking a relationship. And you can see that the two outliers up here is the United States and the United Kingdom. And uh, while the UNICEF report identified that they were ranked poorly, it's only when you begin to look at economic structures, stratification, and political structures do you begin to get a sense of how child well-being, even in wealthy countries, may in fact be related to questions of governance and the exercise of power. So we're also looking at uh, under-child five mortality <coughs> throughout the world. The gross national income per capita, again, another crude way of looking at um, resource uh, availability in different countries. And you can see that there are some countries that sort of depart from the norm at the very bottom. Sierra Leone has the worst uh, child mortality in the world. You can see Botswana does poorly, even though its income is somewhat heavy. Come next slide. When you look at some of the other outliers, you see Mexico, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Brunei, with relatively high child mortality given their levels of income per capita. How about on the bottom? Sri Lanka, Cuba, Thailand, Czech Republic, Singapore. You begin to see some variation in how well how kids are faring in these different populations. And next slide. United States and the UK. Okay, and when we just cut, look at the poorest group, less than 10,000 GNI per capita, and look at it more refined way, you see that some of these outliers are really sub-Saharan Africa. South Africa, Botswana, Swaziland, Angola stand out uh, pretty dramatically. You can see this. The ones at the bottom, China, Cuba, Vietnam. Okay. Uh, can you go back one second? And just to point out that there are variations in child mortality, even when you begin to um, control for things like income and other <coughs> development indicators, that in fact political structures governance, if you will, 
may in fact influence the health and well-being of kids uh, in different ways. When we look at the provision of antiretroviral therapy, I just chose countries with uh, high prevalence rates of HIV. Um, you can also see that there is considerable variation. We even very poor countries like Uganda and Rwanda. Rwanda does pretty well in getting antiretrovirals to um, people in need. We're also very interested in looking at efficacious child interventions. And we call it the GOBI indicators because GOBI was the strategy adopted by UNICEF, growth monitoring, oral rehydration, breastfeeding, immunizations. How does political change, how does political structure affect the provision of these essential, highly efficacious interventions? And our group has been very focused on even creating first the data set that might be available to begin to look at these kinds of things. Data sets with political variables are not coupled with data sets with um, health interventions. Therefore, we had to create this. And much of the summer, and I don't know, four or five students full-time jobs were basically to create these data sets. We're also um, looking at case studies, places in the real world where we can get a sense of uh, health, child health and governance. And we're focusing on the town of Guatemala where Liliana, um, Liliana lives. Next slide. This is San Lucas Toliman. It's an indigenous town, about 15,000 people on the South Shore of Lake Antilan. Just another beautiful place, but very poor. The average, the median income is generally thought to be under $1,000 uh, a year. So malnutrition is highly prevalent, um, and virtually about 40% of all the kids are grade three malnutrition or worse in the communities that we're looking at. Children suffer from acute illness. This is scabies, a little mite that gets into the skin that can create enormous discomfort, infection, and sometimes uh, serious illness. And this is the, this is the um, coffee plantation that we studied. What we're interested in was what happened to child health when the people living on the coffee plantation in houses like this, without any land, just, just squatting on the plantation, benefited from a land distribution program and got for the first time in their life deeds to their own houses. Next slide. This is what happened. What you saw was an organization shift that the community organized itself, moved onto this, this new land, and began to build um, much better housing. Next slide. Improve water systems as well. That it wasn't only the deed for the <coughs> land that made all the difference, but community organization shifted once this kind of shift in governance really changed. Okay. A health promoter program was started where local community organizers um, volunteered uh, people from their community to participate in training programs. Go to the next slide. This is when they got their Donde No Hay Doctor book, their graduation present, which is sort of a, a, a manual for uh, health promotion throughout the third world. And one of the crucial things was weighing kids. What happens to child health and nutrition? What happens to their growth parameters before the land distribution and after the land distribution is really what we were studying. Next slide. 
And all, all the time we have um, Stanford students working with us on this project. Asya Ogulnik, can we go back one? Uh, Asya Ogulnik is a medical student, and she was basically running the weighing of the children after the land distribution in the villages that benefited from the land distribution. I want to quickly point out that that happy face right there is Belinda's daughter, Devin, who this is one of the very few times that she wasn't up and helping. I just, sorry, I just caught her when she was resting. <laughs> okay. Okay. Also, nutrition education, the lead health promoter, um, uh, <coughs> providing this kind of work on breastfeeding, particularly breastfeeding, but also uh, nutrition supplementation. Next slide. And if you, any, have you had a question about whether breastfeeding works, <laughs> just remember this guy. Uh, it's crucial for young child health in places like Guatemala. Next slide. Also, students going out door to door as part of the program for weighing kids, looking at this is also TB screening and indoor uh, stove improvement. Next slide. And also mental health services associated um, with um, this change in governance um, among uh, these families. Prevention, crucial. There was never a promotion program. There was never a prevention program until the land distribution took place. Okay, here, uh, oral health, putting fluoride on teeth. Next slide. Kids in schools getting their first toothbrush. And Colgate, Colgate, their toothpaste uh, for the first time. Next slide. Um, and they're very proud. Okay. And what I've basically tried to do is to suggest that, in fact, um, by looking in a very global sense with sophisticated data analysis on global data sets, we can get insight into how political structures may be affecting the provision of highly efficacious interventions for children, but also through case studies, through stories. You can also begin to get a sense of how the political and cultural context will shape the actual distribution, how the exercise of power really operates in the real world to affect kids' health. Next slide. And it doesn't, it's not confined merely to Guatemala. We're looking at HIV in India. Next slide. AIDS orphans in Sub-Saharan Africa. This is um, a, a child with TB in Bangladesh. These are street kids in Bangladesh. Street kids in Calcutta. Uh, these are fisher workers, kids who, who jump off boats to put out nets in extremely deep water, very hazardous. These are beady rollers who, in India who um, make beady cigarettes uh, full time. And sex traffickers, uh, sex traffic girls in Southeast Asia. Um, next slide. And wherever we take this, our lens, our basic um, focus is on how governance, political reform, affects child health and well-being. That management science, highly technical understanding of obstacles that get in the way of dissemination of important efficacious interventions like antiretrovirals um, will not be sufficient. That at some level we're going to have to be able to capture the political structures, the requirements for <coughs> political reform that will shape health in places uh, like Guatemala. Basically, the death of any child is always a tragedy, but the death of any child from preventable causes is always unjust. That a focus on the political aspects of health in places like this 
will be crucial in understanding that relationship. It will identify challenges and it will be discouraging at times, but it's also an arena of real hope because you see wide variations in what countries can do. You also are more respectful that little pieces of hope can come about when you least expect it. Three nights ago, I got a call from the lead health promoter. And you know what he told me? Liliana's mother, she's pregnant. Hope comes in ways that you least expect it. So thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.